Let's, let's open those to Romans chapter 8. I know that you've been there all week. Um, I wish that I could have been with you the last couple of days uh, and heard these other brothers preach from Romans chapter 8. It's such a wonderful book, wonderful chapter, and uh, it's one that um, I have been seeking to commit to memory for some time now, uh, and I've, I've yet to complete my attempt to, to memorize it. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Um, let, me give you, let me give you our aim. Where are we headed uh, before we dig into the text? Uh, this, is, this is the focus. This is the aim. All that stands between our present suffering and the, in, the incomparable glory of the redeemed is eager waiting. All that stands between our present suffering and the incomparable glory of the redeemed is eager waiting. Read with me now. I'll read. You follow along. Romans chapter 8, 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we, excuse me, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Let me pray again for our time in the word together now. Father, I pray that you would be gracious to us this morning. That you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray that your gospel would come this morning, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm guessing that you have not heard from a pastor or any other Christian what I'm about to tell you. I want to explain to you over the next few minutes some of the reasons why you should not be a Christian. I'm going to give you some reasons why you should not be a Christian. All right, you ready for this? Christians are not promised comfort. Christians can expect to suffer. Christians will be persecuted. Christians will be ridiculed for their beliefs. Christians will face threats 
Christians will be recipients of false accusations. Christians have been and will be unfairly imprisoned. Christians will be despised by secular governments. Christians are made more aware of their sinfulness. Christians are called to live lives of humility. Christians aren't called to lessen their own sufferings. Christians will be uniquely tempted. Christians are made, already said this, more aware of their sinfulness. I guess I wrote that one twice. Christians, maybe it's important enough for us to remember, Christians will face the ire of Satan. Christians are called to go among those who hate them. Christians are called to live sacrificially. Christians will be rejected by those whom they try to love. The Christian's message will be wildly unpopular. Christians will be ordained by God to suffer. The one whom they follow will ordain their suffering. Christians are acquainted with grief. Like Job in the Old Testament, some Christians will be sorely tested. Some Christians will be rejected by their own blood family because of their faith. Some Christians have been and will be killed for their faith. Christians will suffer. It is inevitable. So you should not be surprised when as a Christian, suffering comes. As a matter of fact, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, I love this verse. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. Let me, let me read it again. Listen to the words. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Suffering and salvation are married. They go together. They can't be separated. If you receive salvation, you will also experience suffering. Romans chapter 8 Verse 18 is the beginning of our text this morning. says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'm not sure how many of you this morning consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus. I'm not sure how many of you have put your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure how many have trusted Jesus to forgive them of their sins. I'm not sure who believes the death and resurrection of Jesus actually happened and that it's your only hope for salvation. As I survey the room, some of you I don't even know by name. I'm seeing your face for the first time this morning. There's a lot about you I don't know. But I do know whether you have trusted Jesus or not, everyone gathered here will suffer in this life. That 
I do know. Everyone in this, under this pavilion will suffer in this life. The question is, will you suffer with understanding and hope or will you remain in the dark about your suffering? This morning's text begins by telling us to consider something in particular. Paul tells us to consider not just the inevitable reality of suffering, but we're also to consider a future glory that is to be revealed. There's one problem with this consideration that Paul suggests. He's not writing to those who do not believe. So when Paul asks us to consider this, he's asking believers in Rome to consider what he's about to write. And he gives them two things to consider. Their present suffering and a future glory that awaited them. That future glory doesn't await everyone. I'm here to say right at the beginning of the sermon that if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is no future glory awaiting you. And so a lot of what we read afterwards won't be applicable apart from trusting Jesus for your salvation. Apart from faith in Jesus, you cannot consider the subject that Paul writes about. As I mentioned, Christians will suffer in ways that the world will never suffer in this life. It's true. People who aren't Christians aren't going to suffer the same way that Christians suffer. Christians will suffer uniquely. I want you to see in verse 18 that we have an unbalanced equation. An unbalanced equation. I want you to pay close attention to Paul's words in the opening verse. He tells us to consider. We've we've already established that. To consider means to reckon, to to take into account, or listen to this, calculate. You need to calculate what Paul is saying to us. He says, calculate this. There's two objects that we're going to calculate, suffering and glory. So let's put, imagine we have a a balance up here, right? You you know what I'm talking about? A balance that has two pans, and if they're empty, they're the same. They stay side by side. And as you begin to add weight to one side, it drops and the side with nothing in it begins to rise, right? It's a math problem. If you've already taken algebra class in your education, you've worked on equations. For an equation to be solved, both sides have to be equal. But in this calculation that Paul is asking us to consider, he says the two sides are not worthy to be compared, meaning That one, on one side, it is not equal to what's on the other side. All right? So it's not going to balance. We can't put an equal sign in the middle. That scale set that I told you to imagine, when the scale set is empty, it's balanced. But in order for scales to remain balanced, whatever's added to one side, we have to add to the other side. And in this verse, Paul is telling us that one side far outweighs the other. It's like we put a ton of bricks in one side and we left the other side almost remotely empty. We may have dropped a pebble or two in the other side. And the minute we drop those bricks, what's going to happen? It's just going to crash to the floor on that heavy side. For I consider that the sufferings, these little pebbles that have been dropped in this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory, that ton of bricks 
that is to be revealed to us. I don't want to make light of our present suffering. Some of you have already in your short life faced some really difficult things. I I don't pretend to know what all those are. But you've walked through difficult life circumstances. And the longer you live, the more you'll face those. So I don't want to make light of our present suffering. I want to make a couple of notes about the first side of, our, of the equation, that, that suffering side. On the suffering side of the equation, there is this description that's given to us of the length of time. It's present. Suffering is present with us. The longest that any person on the, the earth can possibly suffer is the length of their lifetime. And that may not sound like much fun to you, that I may suffer for my entire life. Listen. Some people are afflicted with different things and they legitimately, they indeed suffer their entire life from one thing or another. We all are going to suffer in some manner. But there is a limit to that suffering. From birth to death is the extent of suffering that any one person will ever have to face who put their faith in Jesus. What this verse doesn't describe is the type or severity of your suffering. God's not telling us how we'll suffer here. We're only finding out that we will suffer and that there's an end to that suffering. Here's a short but non-comprehensive list of the writer's suffering. Paul, who writes this letter to the church in Rome, gives us a list of, again, not comprehensive, of some sufferings that he faced in his lifetime in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Perhaps you've read through this before. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That's with the whip that does a lot of damage on your back. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's intended to kill you. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. That means the ocean. He floated around for an entire night in the ocean. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, that's the external list. He says, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. He's not even telling you about all these emotions and inward turmoil that he wrestles with. He doesn't even try to list that out. But he gives us a list of these sufferings that he had to endure in this life. What he doesn't tell us about is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he he, he mentions that he has this thorn in the flesh that he Beg the Lord to remove from me. And God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you. God doesn't tell us how we'll suffer, only when. But we do know that there is a limit to our suffering. But I want you to see the other side of that equation. On the other side is our future glory. Listen to how Paul compares the two sides. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time... Here's the phrase, are not worthy to be compared. We can't even put them on the same page. This is not a comparison that is up for debate. 
This is not like who's the greatest of all time. Michael Jordan or LeBron James, right? It's, that's, not the, that's not an argument. Somebody could po- possibly make a case for LeBron James, but the reality is most people are going to say Michael Jordan is the greatest player of all time. Listen to me. We're not talking about that kind of debate right now. When we start comparing sufferings in this life with the glory that is to be revealed, it's not a debate. There's not going to be any argument. You can't make a case for our sufferings being greater than the glory that is to be revealed. Or perhaps we would try to formulate in our mind when we're in the heat of suffering. Some of us have tasted the depths and it's hard for us to see that distant future glory. So in the the heat of the moment, perhaps it feels like the balances are tipped the other way. But Paul is reminding us here in this moment that there's no comparison between our sufferings and the future glory that is to be revealed. It's not really a comparison. It's really a recognition. When he says it's not worthy to be compared, he's saying, let's not compare this. Let's just recognize this reality that suffering and glory are not in the same category. Let's just recognize that our future glory far outweighs our current sufferings. Paul is saying, recognize that there's no debate that the glory that is to be revealed absolutely blows away the present sufferings that we face. As believers in Jesus, we're not called to just endure and resign ourselves to this helpless fate of suffering. So I'm saying suffering is sure it's going to happen in this life. What I'm not saying is, well, if that's the case, then I'm just going to suffer for the for the rest of my life. And that's just the way it's going to be. It is a reality, but we don't just throw our hands up and say, well, this is my fate. But we are to recognize that in the midst of suffering, there is a future glory that we look forward to in the midst of that suffering that gives us hope that Paul writes about in the text. As believers, we not only endure suffering, but listen to this. Christians throughout history have been both equipped to understand and listen to this, even rejoice in their day of suffering. Throughout history, Christians have been able to suffer through especially difficult circumstances and persecution with an inexplicable joy. So what is it that can be of so much value that it so heavily tips the balance to one side? What is this glory that I keep talking about? We know what sufferings are. We've experienced them in this life. But what is this future glory? What is this? If it weighs so much, if it has so much value, what exactly is this glory? Well, I believe the remainder of the text gives some explanation of the details. And we'll pick up the pace in verses. If you're wondering, we've been here and we're still in verse 18. I promise we'll move forward at a little bit quicker pace now. But I want us to see not only this unbalanced equation that Paul introduces us to, but I want us to see now this incomparable glory of the redeemed. The incomparable glory of the redeemed. Verse 19 says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 19 speaks of a future revealing that defines 
this glory. This glory Paul speaks of is one that is to be revealed. We haven't seen it fully yet. We've gotten some glimpses of it perhaps, but we haven't seen the full picture of the glory of God just yet. That word reveal that he mentions both in verse 18 and then again in 19. It's a disclosure of truth. Someday we're going to see the whole truth. Someday what was unknown is going to be manifested before us. It's going to appear. We're going to see it clearly. We're going to know it fully. But not yet. There is an unseen promise. That's what hope is. Hope that awaits one who believes in Jesus. Now listen to me. If you want to see the balances, the balance tipped, if you want to see the suffering that we face in this life be raised to the sky because the glory of God drops the other side so heavy in your life, if you want the hope of that, let me say to you again, the only way that you can experience and know that glory is through faith in Jesus. I don't want us to miss the wording that we find in verse 19. We're introduced to these two beneficiaries of future glory. It says this in verse 19. For the anxious longing of creation. There's one, there's one thing that's going to benefit from the glory of God. Creation. And the other is the sons of God. Again, you have to put your faith in Christ to be a son of God. Right? So there's, there's two groups that are going to benefit from this glory that we've been talking about. Creation is one, and the other is the sons of God. So this creation that we see around, this is a beautiful little campus. But this creation, according to God's word, is groaning. It's not as it ought to be. And then the second group is the sons of God. The focal recipient in this glory, this revelation of God's glory, it's not creation as much as it's groaning and as much as... It'll be improved beyond what we see right now. But the focal recipient are the saints of God. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Both creation and humanity suffer under the curse of sin. So when Adam and Eve took of the fruit and the fall of man took place and God rained down his curse upon rebellious man, the earth was cursed with man. The earth began to work against him. And both suffered under the curse that God extended to Adam. But I want you to see that creation, according to verse 19, is looking forward to the redemption, the glory that man will receive. Man is the focal point here. I want you to see in verse 19 that it's the kind of waiting that creation will be doing. It says it's an anxious longing. It waits eagerly. Does that describe it well enough? If you have this anxious longing for something, that you're eagerly waiting. Have you ever waited with high expectation for something? For me, one of the things that really gets me excited are family vacations or a a trip to the beach or to the mountains. And I begin to imagine what the sand will feel like on my feet and the smell of the breeze coming in off the waves of the ocean. Or perhaps... It's that that mountain vacation and the sights similar to this where I'll be in the the treetops and I'll be able to look down into the valley and see thousands of green trees. 
I have these high expectations that I'm going to experience these things when I take this trip. Yellowstone Park, Niagara Falls, the Grand Canyon. I'd love to see them all. Maybe for you it's a live concert of a singer that you really enjoy. To be able to be present in the moment as they sing. Or maybe it's a movie that you've waited for for a long time and you've anticipated that this is going to be a great movie and you're finally able to go and watch it at the theater with surround sound and these cush chairs. Then, once you've experienced whatever it was, you make some judgment based on whether it met your expectations or not. It was all that you hoped it would be. Or maybe it was even better than you imagined. Or maybe it's the other side. You were disappointed. It was a letdown. It wasn't quite what you expected. It didn't meet up with those high expectations. In this verse, what is anxiously, excuse me, anxiously longed for, what is eagerly waited upon, will not disappoint. The future glory to be revealed we are told, is incomparable. It cannot be compared with. Listen to me. The glory of God in the life of the sons of, sons of God will not disappoint. I don't know what else you've heard in all these other sermons. I'm sure that there have been a lot of good takeaways. But if you hear one thing this morning, hear this. Faith in Jesus Christ will not disappoint. It will not disappoint. Your highest expectation will be met plus some. That does not mean, we know according to this text, that you will not suffer. What it does mean is the future glory that awaits you cannot be imagined. It will not let you down. When Queen Sheba had heard about Solomon's Wisdom and the splendor of his kingdom. She set out to see it for herself. And upon her arrival, she discovered it was beyond her imagination. And there's a popular verse. I love the little phrase in it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Everything she imagined, she had way undershot. His kingdom, Solomon's kingdom and his wisdom were beyond what she had imagined. She didn't know the half of it. And what Sheba saw in Solomon's glorious earthly kingdom is but a shadow. It's a mere reflection of the true glory of God. And this highly anticipated glory is primarily for the sons of God. Those who would put their faith in Him for salvation. Romans 8, 20 and 20 through 22 continue to open up this picture of God's glory for us. It says, for creation was subjected to, fut- to futility. When did that happen? When Adam took of the fruit, when he disobeyed God, when he wanted to be God himself and rebelled, sin enters in and this curse of creation takes place. Creation didn't want this. It says that it it was subjected to futility, not willingly. It didn't want that. But because of him, that's God who subjected it. God cursed creation for a purpose, for a reason. And that purpose... That purpose is so that one day Jesus Christ would come and free creation from its slavery to corruption 
into freedom of the glory of the children of God. Listen to me. What freedom God's people, those who have put their faith in him, will experience one day, creation will follow suit. It's following close behind when God redeems the sons who have put their trust and faith in him. Along, Along with humanity, creation groans and suffers in pain, cursed, longing to be free because creation is personified in this text. It, it's made like a person to have these emotions and these feelings of, of pain. And in one sense, the whole world has been subjected to the futility because of the fall of man. When Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, all creation was thrown out of harmony and subjected to this futility. Look with me in Romans 8.23. We want to press on. Paul says not only will creation feel this groaning, this suffering, but he says, and not only that, not only will creation feel that, but also we ourselves, we ourselves will feel the toil of life on earth. We'll feel the pains of it. We'll feel the difficulty the suffering that comes with our journey on earth. But we also, but also we ourselves, and then listen to this, having the first fruits of the Spirit. Let's settle in here for just a minute before we finish up. Here in verse 13, verse 23 is the whole crux of the matter. This, I believe, is why Paul writes this portion of Romans 8. We have the same groaning in ourselves that creation just demonstrated for us in the previous verses. We have this longing for a better day. This can't be it. There has to be more than what this life has to offer. All the suffering has given us this longing for a future glory that is to be revealed. You should not feel at home on this earth. Your life should not be one of ease if you're a believer. You should face hardship. I told you from the beginning of the sermon, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, right? Not only salvation, but also that we would suffer for His sake. They go hand in hand. All the suffering has given us, should give us this longing for a future glory. The text says that we have the first fruit of the Spirit. What does that mean? It means that upon faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. He enters in, maybe even unnoticed uh, to our our, our mind, but He enters into the life of the person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ and He reorients our affections. And He sheds light on our understanding. And He begins to create in us a longing for a future glory that awaits We're given a new desire when the Holy Spirit enters in. Listen to me. If you don't long for that future glory, it may be because the Spirit hasn't given you that new desire. Because you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ to save you. But when the Spirit comes in, we get a taste of future comfort, of future joy, and happiness that await us. Creation does have... What a repentant man trusting in Christ has. Excuse me. The creation does not have what a repentant man trusting in Christ has. The Holy Spirit. Creation doesn't give us spirit to give us a a taste of that future glory. So tasting the presence of God 
in this life while struggling through difficult circumstances causes us to long for a day of our future glory. There's a future glory that awaits us. But here, Paul gives a little more insight into what we can look forward to. He says that we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. He gets a little more detail there. We're waiting for our adoption. I know that we at least have one adopted student with us this morning. Perhaps there's more and I'm just not as aware. What is adoption? It's when you're chosen to enter into, to be brought into a new family. That's exactly what God does for us. Our adoption is this. We've trusted in Jesus, His death, His resurrection. On that cross, our sins were paid for. The full price of our sins, the due penalty that we deserve is paid for. And we're adopted. We believe that Jesus rose from the death, conquering not only our sin, but death itself. We have hope that Jesus can impute to us life and His righteousness. Listen to me. This is what adoption does. In the day and age that we live in, for somebody to be adopted, there's, it's pretty expensive. There's these high fees that have to take place. And so these, these fees are paid. To purchase, to bring in to the family. And this love is extended. And it's exactly what God does. He's, he's paid a ransom for us to adopt us. Even though our sin has separated us from God. Jesus' death on the cross paid the price to invite us in to His family. He has chosen us to be called sons of God. And our adoption is final. That, 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 that fee has been paid. But listen to me. We're not going to know fully what that adoption is like until we see Jesus face to face. Until we're ushered into eternity. Until we receive that glory that awaits us. It's paid for. It's done. It's sealed. It's, it can't be reversed. But we won't know it fully until we're with God in heaven. And on that day, that day of glory, according to the text, we'll be given a new body, no longer weighed down with the sufferings of this world, but completely removed from the difficulties and cares that we face daily. No more death, no more sorrow, no more fear, no more anxiety, no more pain, no more hurt, no more weariness, no more ailments, no more afflictions, just glorified bodies. And the time frame is not like these sufferings in this present time. The time frame is not just momentary, but for all eternity. This is an eternal glory that we will receive. The future glory of the saints is eternal and the suffering of this world are only for a present time. I hope you see the incomparable glory of the redeemed held out by Paul in the text compared to the sufferings that we will face. And he says this in verse 24. We see the hope of the waiting saint. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For, what, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, through perseverance, 
We wait eagerly for it. We're told in verse 24, for in hope we have been saved. We're told that in hope we are saved. Ephesians 2 tells us something a little different than that about our salvation. It says, for by grace you have been saved. Which one is it? Is it hope or is it grace? It's both. God's grace to us. Our hope in what Christ has accomplished for us. And it says this in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Let's make sure that we're clear on salvation as we talk about it this morning. Hope and faith are simply instruments that we use to receive salvation that is extended to us by the object of our faith. That's Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can save. You can't hope enough to be saved. You can't hope enough to be saved. It's just the instrument by which we receive God's salvation to us. But salvation is extended to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus saves. Jesus graciously graciously died on the cross for our sins. Jesus is the one who redeems us from our sins and gives us freely His salvation through His shed blood and His righteousness. We must believe in Jesus alone to be saved. But we hope. We hope in what Jesus has accomplished for us. When we first believe upon Jesus, we are not ushered directly into heaven. Pain and suffering do not immediately end. So just because you put your faith in Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we won't still feel this other side of the equation in this life. We're left in a fallen, cursed world, but not without hope. We hope in what we cannot see fully or taste at the moment in its fullness. We hope in a future promised glory that's sealed, that's guaranteed to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. We're left to do what all true believers do. Persevere in eager expectation. Listen to me. The life of a true believer is marked with an eager waiting or waiting eagerly for this future glory. We demonstrate our genuine faith by by remaining hopeful. We endure through sufferings in this world Because we know there's a future glory that awaits us if we put our hope in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 and 18. We'll conclude with this in a few comments. It says this, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Sounds similar, right? While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary or temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We have to fix our eyes on the unseen future glory that is found in Christ, in Christ alone. This is what I'll end with. The Bible tells us that suffering is never without purpose. It's not purposeless. Nor is suffering the ultimate fate of those who trust in Christ. It will happen, but it's not our ultimate fate. The greatest hope is in the reality that Christ has died for His people 
and is making all things new, including creation. Rather than looking to themselves in times of suffering, so we as believers don't look to ourselves in times of suffering, the Christian must look to Christ who has died in their place so that they might be redeemed from the sin and its curse. This hope is only possible for those who believe in the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation, and waiting patiently for this incomparable glory is the life that we have been called to live. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for texts like this. Father, I'll be the first to admit underneath this pavilion with all these other people that life throws us some difficult circumstances. We do suffer. We will suffer. And those sufferings can come from so many different angles. Some caused by poor decisions that we make in our own life. Sometimes by outside persecution. Some are ordained by you. That we would walk through difficult circumstances. All for a purpose. Lord, help us to see that purpose to cause us to trust in Jesus for our salvation, to give us a hope of a future glory that awaits. Lord, help us. Lord, help us to fix our eyes not on what is seen in this life, these momentary afflictions, but what is unseen, the eternal salvation that is extended to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for anybody in this under this little pavilion now, that if they have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that they would trust Him. Pray that they would trust Him to save them from themselves and from sin and from all that this world will throw at them. Father, I pray that You would say, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.